So here's a person who's a slave. He is, an, he is a slave to sin by presenting himself for obedience to that sin, and he's enslaved to it. How could such a person free himself? That's crazy. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, your Word is truth. There is no preaching, there is no sermons, there is no teaching apart from the Word of God. There's nothing worth anything apart from the Word of God. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It is more valuable, more provable by reason of who wrote it than anything else, any other writing, any other person. The Word of God is just that. It's the Word of God. The one who is the I am that I am, the one who is without beginning of days or end of life, the one who is the source of everything created. To you be the honor and the praise and the glory. May we hear the word of God from you. May you supply your Holy Spirit for the speaking forth of this message. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is episode 74, entitled Fatalism, Freedom, and Divine Sovereignty. Might say, Fatalism, Freedom, yes, and Divine Sovereignty, assorted scriptures used. We're going to begin with this idea of fatalism as defined by the dictionary. Uh, the, the belief that all events are predetermined and therefore inevitable. Fatalism can breed indifference to, you, to the human cost of war. Now that's according to the dictionary. I would add fatalism can breed indifference to future events, to eternal realities, to spiritual realities. Cambridge Dictionary puts it this way, the belief that people cannot change the way events will happen and that events, especially bad ones, cannot be avoided. That's according to the Cambridge Dictionary. <clears throat> Fatalism is not a godly Christian teaching. The focus of a fatalist is that all things are out of human control. The outcome of all things is an unseen fate. It's not a person. So what is it? It is a philosophy. And it's a philosophy of the devil. In the plan of God, Christians battle in the spirit against all such philosophies. Second Corinthians 10, 4 and 5 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. The fortresses here, we, he goes on and he says in verse 5, we are destroying arguments. 
these fortresses or arguments set up. How? And, and all arrogance raised against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The option to taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, well, something other than that. And the other that it is, is it's arrogance. It's things raised against the knowledge of God. And this is Paul writing to a Christian church. He's not preaching a sermon for the lost. This isn't an evangelistic couple of scriptures here. This is scriptures for a church that had been very spiritually active and endowed and gifted and extremely disobedient and confused. And it's in that context we need to understand these destroying arguments. Now the arguments that we're talking about today is fatalism, freedom, and, and divine sovereignty. God is sovereign over all things and brings all things to pass according to his will. And at the same time, he justly holds men accountable for their actions. <laughs> we need to say that again. Let me, let me say that again. That God is sovereign over all things. This is biblical thinking right now, which I hope to prove in the course of this message. And brings all things to pass according to his will. And at the same time, he justly holds men accountable for their actions. This is not fatalism. This is divine sovereignty. James in 4.2 tells us, you do not have because you do not ask. Now think about that for a second. You do not have because you do not ask. Something is dependent on humans here. This isn't divine sovereignty as in a fatalistic approach to what that means. This is dependence at the same exact time that God is sovereign. We have to realize you do not have because you do not ask. You see how these two come together. And it's not like the man who's on one side of the, of the pendulum so much so that it's sitting on the ground. He has to hold his pendulum in the middle so that it's, it's parallel with the earth. Then it's working. Then you have two things that are working at the same time, even though you can't quite understand them. The providence of God allows for such things as unanswered prayer of the saints, and if prayed, would produce an alternative outcome. You hear that? The providence of God allows providence for such things as unanswered prayer of the saints, and if prayed, would produce an alternate outcome. Again, this is not fatalism, but it is the providence of God. The providence of God, like the sovereignty of God, is not fatalistic. Just one way, this is the outcome, and just man is not there. That's not providence. Providence is God working amidst all the things that are taking place on earth in which he is allowing and yet has a perfect will. I know it's confusing, just let's go with it for now. Let's briefly move on to the biblical teaching of freedom from the law. This is Galatians 5, 1 and 2. Freedom. We're just going to do this, and I'm going to bounce back and forth from sovereign, the divine sovereignty, 
fatalism, freedom, slavery. I'm just going to look at these. And we're going to try to see how they fit in, into one another. Dovetail, if you will. Galatians 5, 1 and 2. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not subject again. Be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, tell you that if you have... If you yourselves have circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Now he's talking about the circumcision as something that was performed in the Old Testament. Men were saying, you have to be circumcised to be saved. And he's saying, look, if you're circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit. There's this situation between the law and freedom. There is a freedom that men can enjoy which is not apart from Christ. The yoke of slavery to which Paul refers is slavery to the law. The law is not a means of salvation but a revelation that all men are slaves to sin. Keeping is impossible or keeping the law is impossible because of the slavery to sin. Only death to self, can remove the slavery to sin because self-centered behavior, even in the attempt to be moral, becomes slavery to sin. So let me say that again. Only death to self can remove the slavery to sin because self-centered behavior, that puts me, the sinner, at the center of all things, self-centered behavior, even in attempt to be moral, becomes slavery to sin. We're trying to work our way through the difference between slavery, freedom, fatalism, and divine sovereignty. Slavery to sin is not the result of an impersonal fate because it does not leave room, or fate does not leave room, for human accountability. Slavery to sin is under the umbrella of the sovereign working of God that takes into an account human choice that enslave men to their sin. Sovereignty works. <laughs> it works with slavery. It works with human choice. It doesn't avoid it. It's not separate from it. It's not like they don't exist. All of these things are present in the, in the Bible and they have to be taken into account. You can't just discount them. And people do that without even realizing it just by a perspective that they have on sovereignty, on freedom, on slavery, all of these areas, <clears throat> all of these doctrines. To be clear, some men speak about free will as though all men are born with it and it cannot be tampered with or, or removed. You understand that? Therefore, they think that the master plan of God has determined a free will that trumps all of God's decisions as if he were not sovereign. Uh, let me say that again. Some men speak about free will as though all men are born with it and it cannot be tampered with or removed. Therefore, they think 
that the master plan of God has determined a free will that trumps all God's decisions as if they were not sovereign. <clears throat> Others believe there is fate that determines the outcomes without the person of God or the free will of men. It's just fate. Neither one of the two previous philosophies discussed allows for biblical slavery. doesn't. Let us now introduce a biblical freedom from slavery. And that way we'll see better what slavery is. Freedom from sin is found in Romans 6, 5-7. Quote, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For the one who has died is freed from sin. Let's think about these concepts. Sin is rebellion against God. It's obstinate and it wants self in control. The outcome of is slavery to sin. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Self was crucified, and as a result of self being crucified, our body of sin might be done away. Death in Christ results in freedom from sin, according to this passage. Therefore, slavery to sin is not possible apart from death in Christ. Slavery to sin, or the death to slavery to sin, is not possible apart from death in Christ. Therefore, the so-called freedom of the will does not exist outside of Christ. Did you hear that? We just said, certainly, with him in the likeness of his death, when united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So prior to Christ, we are slaves to sin. We must understand this, because people want to say, some want to say we are free. Therefore, the so-called freedom of the will does not exist outside of Christ. Therefore, the idea of freedom to choose Christ is not biblical. Death is the answer to slavery. Life lived before death in Christ is not freedom but slavery. Death is the answer to slavery. Christ's death and our death in him. Let us now consider an even wider understanding of the nature of slavery. And the one freed from the master of sin becomes a slave of righteousness. Romans 6, 16-18 Do you not know that the one to whom you present yourselves as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of that same one whom you obey? either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart 
to that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. And after being freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. I know that's a mouthful. It had to fill your mind with all kinds of thoughts. It's, it's not an easy read. But let's think about it. Let's take one at a time. And let me say first, the presentation for obedience by a man means such a one is a slave to one he presents himself. And that comes from, do you not know that the one to whom you present yourselves as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of that same one. So a man comes and he presents himself to sin. He then is a slave of the obedience. I'm going to obey you, sin. And as such, as presenting himself this way, he becomes obedient to that same sin. This is not a man who is operating under fatalism that just chooses what we do or what we don't do. This is a biblical concept which allows for God being sovereign over it all, even though it's like, how do these two things work together? Just stop. Don't go that far. Right now, all we're understanding is that people present themselves to sin for obedience. And in that doing, in doing that, they become slaves. That's exactly what it says. There is a presenting of oneself to another, and in either case, it means slavery. Because he says then after that, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. So you present yourself for obedience to God rather than rebellion to God and you become, it results in righteousness. And therefore he goes on and says, but thanks be to God. God is getting the thanks here, not men, not some freedom of choice. The one who gets the glory for the righteous obedience of God, Paul says, the one who gets the glory For the righteous obedience is God. The one who gets the glory for the righteous obedience is God. God gets the glory for a person's righteous obedience. Paul says, but thanks be to God. He doesn't say, but thanks be to freedom of the will that allowed us to choose Jesus. That's not what he's saying here. Quote, but thanks be to to our freedom of choice that allowed us to choose Christ is most definitely not what he's saying. In fact, he goes on to say, though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. So here's a person who's a slave. He is is a slave to sin by presenting himself for obedience to that sin, and he's enslaved to it, how could such a person free himself? That's crazy. It's ludicrous. It's ridiculous. Make no mistake, the one who entrusted, who entrusted, (laughs) handed us over for our obedience from the heart was God. The one who entrusted us, that's what it says, to which you were entrusted, that's handed over. We were handed over. And we were handed over by God for our obedience from the heart. That's the context. 
Thanks be to God. In this scriptural context, we do not see fatalism as the person of God is involved. The person of God is involved, not some fatalistic philosophy. Neither do we observe a freedom of the will because man is handed over from slavery to become a slave of righteousness. We don't observe freedom of the will in this at all. If anything, freedom, as some would have us believe, in a totally autonomous human being does not exist in this context at all. It's talking about slavery and being rescued from it, being entrusted to something else, being turned over, in Greek, to something else. One is slavery to sin, the other is slavery to righteousness. Biblically, the slavery to righteousness is the freedom to do what is right. You hear that? Biblically, the slavery to righteousness is the freedom to do what is right. Having considered fatalism when contrasted with a freedom of the will or a freedom through death and resurrection, which then become freedom through Christ's death and resurrected life, let us move on to divine sovereignty. <clears throat> divine sovereignty is proclaimed in Isaiah 49 and verses 1 through 4. Listen to me, you islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. And he has also made me a sharpened arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and futility. Nevertheless, the justice due to me is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. Let's get the sense of what's being said here. This is Israel speaking. And that as he speaks to begin with, it's, it's the Lord that called him from the womb. He had nothing to do with it. In the womb, there's no choice going on. They're a mindless human being at that point. From the body of my mother, he named me. I mean, he's giving the name. He's, he's creating the being. He's made my mouth like a sharp sword. It's being prepared from before. In the shadow of his hand, I mean, he's just covered up. He's just in the shadows. He's concealed me. And he's also made me a sharpened arrow. I mean, he's got a purpose for him, and he's going to use him. And he has hidden me in, a, in his quiver. He sticks it in the quiver like you can't even see the arrow. It's a picture of God doing something, using something, which is hidden. He said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. This isn't the glory of Israel. This isn't Israel doing or choosing or with some freedom that overshadows God's sovereignty. That's not what's being said here. And Israel, it's almost like Israel wakes up. But I said, I have labored in vain. This is the honesty of humility. I have spent my strength for nothing, and it's in futility. 
Nevertheless, the justice due to me is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. God gets all the glory. Man gets nothing. It's hard to understand if you're coming from that perspective of some freedom of the will. Israel was unfaithful from the exodus and the 40-year wandering unto the exile and captivity, where they went into captivity for 70 years. I mean, it's just, it's just 800 years of just constant rejection, rebellion, disobedience, except for the remnant. Israel was unfaithful through continued slavery in their own land through the rejection of Christ and Messiah and the dispersion into all nations for 2,000 years. What glory does Israel get? I mean, just read the prophets coming down, hammering the people. I mean, that's the, New, that's the Old Testament. That's the history of Israel. It's just nothing except what God does in the remnant. People chosen to be a nation, a biologically engineered people from, from Abraham. Abraham had faith, and only the remnant had faith, and all the rest have the name, but that's all they have. And before the church didn't complain too much, it's the same exact thing. I deal with it every week. In God's time, he will deliver through salvation whom he will by his means and for his glory. In God's time, he will deliver through salvation whom he will and by his means and for his glory. Romans chapter 11, 25-27 says this, and here's, this is all about the sovereignty of God. Quote, beginning in verse 25, For I do not want you brothers and sisters in this Paul talking to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be saved just as it is written the deliverer will come from Zion he will remove ungodliness from Jacob this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, if anyone's confused about who Israel is, Israel is a covenant people which are of the seed of Abraham. Nothing else makes sense. There are Gentile nations, and all of those nations, whichever ones they might be, do not come from the seed of Abraham. This has made nations increase unbelievably incensed by this nation of Israel that brings the law and, and, and appear to be such hypocrites because it's made up of sinners. That is a problem. It's a problem in the church today. All these churches filled with hypocritical people who say one thing and do another. But this scripture from Romans is no less true because there are hypocrites in Israel and hypocrites in the church. Paul says, I do not want you, brothers and sisters, to be uninformed. I do not want you to be uninformed. That's of what? We ask the question. And he goes on and says, a mystery of this mystery. A mystery is something spoken, but not completely understood in the Old Testament scriptures. A fuller understanding is revealed in the New Testament. Now, you can understand what's being said in the Old Testament. You take it just for what it is. There's no misunderstanding. There's no spiritualizing. There's no 
mysticism. There's none of this stuff about understanding the Old Testament. At the same time, the Old Testament people saw things as not as clearly understood as we can understand it through the New Testament scriptures. A fuller understanding is revealed in the New Testament. The reason for Paul's wanting us to be informed is so that we will not be wise in our own estimation. When we look at the Old Testament and people start messing with it and saying it's, not un it's unclear and all of this, that's when people get built up and they get built up with a wisdom of their own, in their own estimation of ourselves. Whether it's, oh, we're New Testament people and we understand better. Bad? No, not good. That's not what Paul is talking about in Romans 11, but just the opposite. Whether it's fatalism or free will, whether it's um, amillennial beliefs or replacement theology or just a dozen other philosophies that just ridicule and criticize the, the Old and the New Testament, none of that is worth anything. None of that is correct. They're demonic and they bring the believer and the unbeliever into slavery to themselves, these philosophies. The alternative to fatalism and free will is divine sovereignty that says and does, quote, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob, another form of Israel. Is Jacob being that fleshly, liar and thief that is turned into something other. He's turned into Israel. He's turned into a man blessed by God. This is my covenant with them then <clears throat> when I take away their sins. This is God talking, quoting from Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34 by the writer to the Hebrews, who says in chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, this is the covenant which I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws upon their hearts and write them on their mind. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will no longer remember, or I will remember no more. So what's going on here? The covenant, the covenant of the law, which was dependent upon men to keep it, was done away and replaced by a second covenant, which was to be dependent upon God. In the second covenant, we read these very different and very dependable words, declares the Lord. Who's making this covenant? Who's stating it? Declares the Lord, I will put my laws upon their hearts and write them on their minds. The Hebrew writer says, he then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will no longer remember. Why? Because in a very intimate and personal way, God removes the heart of stone, which is incapable of change or choice, and replaces it with a heart of flesh, capable of choosing Christ as Savior and Lord, thereby exchanging the tyrant of sin and replacing it with the freedom of Christ as the righteous master. Thereby the sovereign God sets the sinner free, redeeming whom he will 
and holding accountable whom he will. Now, if you're confused, and I hope you're not, there's a sovereign work of God. It's no less than the miracle of raising a dead person, of raising a person from the dead in newness of life. That's what he's talking about here. You know, we're all dead in sins and trespasses, Colossians chapter 1. We're, we are the walking dead, the zombies that they make and make fantasies out of and sci-fi fiction. and We are the walking dead as we are born in the race of Adam. And only God, by a miraculous work, can intercede with sovereignty, redeem people from the curse of the law, buying them back by the sacrifice of the cross, having sent the Son to die and take our sins in His place. It's that sacrifice that sets the sinner free. To the lost listening to this message, or to those who want to evangelize the sinner, lost in slavery, neither fatalism or freedom will or can save you. Can't do it. There is a God, and we are not Him. Only God can set the captive free. We write it in our songs, we sing it in our hymns, we read it in the scripture, and yet men do not want to believe it. To the Christian listening to this message, I also give a warning. It may even be harder to see than for the lost. Why would I say such a thing? Why should I say that it's harder, perhaps, to see than the lost? I mean, didn't that the songwriter pen the words, Once I was blind, but now I see. You know, saved from the bondage of sin does not translate into incapable of being fooled by satanic lies. You hear that? If you're a brother in Christ, if you're a sister in Christ, if you're a person that's put their faith in Jesus Christ, number one, you, you don't have to be real. Uh, number two, if you are truly regenerate and born again, well, you are real. Um, but saved from the bondage of sin does not automatically translate into being incapable of being fooled by satanic lies. And it's hard to see the difference between fatalism, a person who believes in fate, rather than a person who believes in divine sovereignty. And we've gone over this, just mentioning it again in passing, that there's a difference between slavery, a slavery which does not allow fate, and a slavery which does not allow sovereignty of God or freedom to result. If a man is free, if a man is a slave, these things impact on fatalism. They do not impact on the sovereignty of God. Listen carefully as I explain how the Christian can come to understand divine sovereignty. Now this is not understanding it correctly but understand divine sovereignty incorrectly. I've heard people say more times than I care to think about, 
God is in control. As if to say, therefore, all things work out for his divine purpose. So they work out, and they work out good, and there's no reason to be concerned about anything. It's all going to work out. You know, suffering, not suffering, good, bad, nothing matters. Because God's in control. Is that really biblical to think in that way? As if we don't have to be concerned about anything. God is in control, therefore all things work out for his divine purpose. I'm going to question this. We can translate such a thought to mean there is no coming judgment for believers. I mean, why be concerned about anything? Isn't that the thought? That's the thought. I mean, why are you worrying? What difference does it make? It's all going to work out in the end. Translate, there's no judgment to worry about. Well, we're not going to face the great white throne judgment. That's true. But that's not the only judgment that's coming. Why worry about the ending? It's just a matter of fate. That's how you would say that. No Christian would say they mean to say that. I don't think. Maybe they would. Maybe there's those who are just that arrogant. But a concerned person will be most concerned about judgment, even as a Christian. Why do I say that? 2 Corinthians 5, 9 to 10 says this. Therefore, we also have our ambition, whether at home or or absent, and that means in this body, whether in this body or go off to heaven, to to be pleasing to him. Therefore, we also have our ambition, whether still here at home or certainly at one absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive compensation for his deeds done through the body so that he may receive compensation, deeds done through the body in accordance with what he has done, whether good or empty or worthless. Bad is not in the original word. Our ambition, that is in Greek, our love to seek after honor. And that's God's honor. Our love to seek after God's honor. It's God's honor. And most important is to be faithful to Christ. The fleshly man either seeks his own honor or takes for granted his place in God's sight. You hear that? You want to see the difference? You want to understand the difference between a spiritual man, a man walking in the Spirit, a man filled with the Spirit, and a man filled with the flesh. The difference is one seeks the honor of God That's what he's worth living for, God's glory. Or he's seeking his own honor. Or he's just taking for granted that it's all going to work okay, okay, and he doesn't have to worry about anything. That's fatalism because fatalism does not regard God's sovereignty. The ambition of the godly and correctly informed is to be pleasing to Christ and to take nothing for granted. That's right. The the godly ambition is to take nothing 
for granted. Such an attitude could be mistaken for worry or even anxiety, but it's not. Why are you worried? Why are you anxious? What's your problem? We're getting to heaven. Yeah, but how are we getting to heaven? A godly man is concerned about standing face to face with the same Jesus Christ, the same Son of God who went to the cross, was nailed there, his flesh burning with pain, like unless you've been there, you can't understand it. And at the same time, his spirit is thrown into a hellfire for an eternity that only God in a man's body and still yet the Son of God could experience. An eternity, an eternity of suffering. How does a godly man take that for granted? Yeah, no, a spiritual man, a godly man, does not take that for granted unless he is badly wounded, badly confused by the philosophies of the devil, by those strongholds that have to be pulled down. The reality is that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat or handing out rewards. This judgment is for those made godly through the offering of God's Son. And the new covenant which imparts freedom and righteousness in their new hearts. That's the reality. Is that we must all be, be appear before the judgment seat of Christ. For the handing out of rewards. And it's much more than the handing out of rewards. The freedom which the redeemed enjoy is not without accountability. When a man is raised from the dead and he's given the Holy Spirit of promise, and he's given the Holy Spirit of empowerment, which can be used if correctly understood, if correctly humbled by repentance and faith, and a godly repentance, and according to Luther and according to the Bible, continues until his dying day. If a man is not continually humbling himself, he's not continually repenting, he's in a bad place. I don't care if he's redeemed or not. The freedom which the redeemed enjoy is not without accountability. The terms in 2 Corinthians 5.10 are good and worthless. The good done will be gold, silver, and precious stones that will withstand the fire of God's judgment according to 1 Corinthians 3.13-15. The worthless will be the wood, hay, and stubble, that will be reduced to ashes and lost. I quote, And the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. Verse 14, If anyone's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet only so as through fire. This does not sound like a joyride to me. This does not sound like something in which we want to take it for granted. Not because we're facing some wrath. Not because we're facing anger. I'm not sure what's going to be in the eyes of Jesus when the smoke is going up from the fire that's burning up wood, hay, and stubble. If it's the slightest bit of disappointment. The tears are going to flow. I know they're going to flow from me. 
It's going to not be pleasant. It's going to be a fiery judgment. Not because anything I'm being lost. That's not what it says. But he himself will be saved, yet only so as through fire. There's no other way of reading it. That's what it says. He will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet only so as through fire. This is not the great white throne. But I do not want, and no godly, spirit-filled Christian would want to look into the eyes of Jesus with any the slightest disappointment as the, as the wood hand, the stubble, are burned. I mean, come on. There is no room for no accountability, either for the lost or the redeemed. There's no room for it. We're accountable one way or another. One way is eternally worse than the other. But the, uh, the one isn't good. It's not good. The precious blood of Christ and the righteousness of God, God both demand all things be set right and in order. All things. Whether it's rewards or it's eternal punishment, they will be set right. Now hear carefully, if you haven't heard anything else, and I hope you have, because this isn't really going to make sense unless you've listened carefully to what everything came before. Uh, I'm going to use a word that some may upset some people, but I need to use it for the sake of understanding. To the hyper-Calvinist. There's a Calvinist, and a Calvinist is just someone who simply believes in the sovereignty of God. And that that sovereignty of God is sovereign over slavery to sin, over freedom in Christ. It, it's, it's over a fatalistic philosophy of the devil. It's over everything. But it allows for accountability. And so the hyper-Calvinist fatalism is the means of finding grace. And it doesn't find grace. Because it's hyper. It's something other than, you know, it's that, that place where people's responsibility to God is misunderstood. People say the most craziest things in the name of Calvinism. Calvin never taught. And if you haven't read the religious, the, the, uh, the, the institutes of Calvin's institutes, then you, you don't know what he said. You have to read what he said. And he never said a lot of the things that people say he said. But it's a false piece and a false hope that will not bring joy at the judgment seat. And it doesn't bring pure joy in this life either. It's just a fake joy. Because God is in control is not to say it's all good. It's not to say that. All things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, is not to say the same, it's all good. It's not good, and I'm going to tell you why right now. At the judgment, God is not being judged. Did you hear that? At the judgment, the Bema seat, God is not being judged. So the fact that it all comes out according to God's plan does not guarantee there will be no loss of rewards. 
It all comes out the way God wants. So when the people says, what difference does it make? It's all going to come out the way God wants. That's actually a true statement in, in the wrong context. That's not what we're talking about, a judgment. Here's the real context. And here's the real problem. When the Christian stands before Christ at the Bema seat, they will not answer for how things turned out. You hear that? Did you get it? When Christians stand before the Bema seat, they will not answer for how things turned out. But because they built with gold, silver, and precious stones, which are built of the Spirit's power and holiness and love for God's glory. That's what we answer for. Oh, so things turn out the way God wanted. Great. How about this? Did they turn out according to gold, silver, and precious stones? Or did things turn out in spite of our disobedience? Because it's going to turn out either way. But is it because of our obedience or despite our, our, our disobedience? Is it in, despite the fact that we built with hay, wood, hay, and stubble? Or because we built with gold, silver, and precious stones? I'm not saying that it's not turning out according to God's plan. It is. But you see, sovereignty, and remember, providence, providence works and not setting aside man's ability to choose. Remember, he's set free at Calvary. So he now has the power, if he chooses, and the ability and the faith, which is really the, the issue, and the faith to accept what God has said. God has not said that he's going to be judged for how things turn out. He's not saying that. We're going to be judged, not him. And we're going to be judged according to gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble. And it turns out either way. That's the issue. The wood and the hay and the stubble are of the flesh and of the world. And of the devil. That's not good. Now that's not sin. There is no sin. Being judged at the Bema seat of Christ. It's not evil that's being judged. It's worthless. Those are two completely different things. It can't be sin that's being judged. Because Christ paid for that sin. And the father would never. Ever. Judge us according to sin. Once Christ paid that price, and that price was paid 2,000 years ago, that sin is washed away. That doesn't make the fact that the wood hand stubble go up in fire and we are ashamed before Christ that is coming. 1 John chapter 2, the last few verses. And we should not, we should seek with everything we have to understand properly the Word of God and, and walk accordingly so that we will not be caught in shame at his coming. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 6 to 10, and I'll be closing with this one. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example of what is coming for the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, 
who is oppressed by the perverted conduct of unscrupulous people. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then, he's making a point here, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from a trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt passion and despise authority. So you got the ungodly who are judged in the most harsh way and properly, righteously by Almighty God for exactly what is expected and required of them. And he knows how to rescue us as he did righteous Lot. Lot was rescued, to be sure, because God said so. However, at what price? I mean, what about a wife that turned to salt? How about daughters who were incredibly immoral from their association with the world of Sodom and Gomorrah? What about the judgment seat of Christ? I don't know about Old Testament saints. I don't know what judgment they face as compared to us who are on this side of the cross and have the cross you know, in, in total clarity, who have it in substance and not a shadow of things yet to come. I'm not the judge. I don't know how those things are going to be judged. I don't know about people before the flood. I don't know about people before the law and people after the law and before Christ and after Christ and in during the millennial reign, I don't know how those judgments will work except this. I know they're going to be righteous. And I know this. You don't want to take any of them for granted. No person should ever want to take them for granted. It's too late for all the people who are already passed into judgment. It's not too late for us just yet. We need to not take anything for granted. We need to be prepared. We need to know and with a full assurance of faith that we will be rescued because God knows how to rescue us, just as he did Lot. But being rescued from hell does not rescue us from the Bema seat, from the judgment seat of Christ. It doesn't. And we don't want to face that and be shamed before Jesus, whom will look at us with love, with grace and mercy, with an integrity befitting Almighty God. <laughs> Dear Lord, I pray that as we consider this topic today, as we consider this idea of fatalism, freedom, slavery, and divine sovereignty, as we face these concepts, Lord, make them disconcerting to us that maybe even up to this point we've all taken things very, very loosely, lightly because of the extent of Christ's love for us. Taking Christ's love for granted is no better than taking anything for granted. Lord, we don't want to be a people who take Christ's love for granted or his justice. Lord, he's going to hand out rewards 
And it's not going to be about sin. And for us who stand there and we, we receive no rewards, when others have suffered, maybe even unto death, and those circumstances are not in our hands. And some are born and, and they don't face persecution and some are, are born and face it. And some go through life not taking anything for granted and weighing everything and trying to do the best to the glory of God. And they don't go to their death, but they're honoring to God and to Christ. And I'm sure their rewards will not be burned up. And God takes all things into consideration in, in light of his providence and his sovereignty. But in the end, Lord, we, we need to be responsible, willing to be held accountable, willing to say we're wrong, willing to go on repenting, and willing to live by faith. Lord, grant us the faith we need to live a godly life so that we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the presence of the Lord. Lord, may that be true to us who are listening to this tonight who are thinking about these things. May we weigh them very heavily. May we take nothing for granted. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.